Hello, Elucidations listeners. I'm Ben, an intern with the Elucidations podcast. Today on Elucidations, we sit down with Melissa Fusco, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Columbia University, to bring you a puzzle, the puzzle of free choice effects. If you were a guest at my home, and I said to you, you may have tea or coffee, it would be very natural for you to draw the conclusion that you have a choice. That is, it would be natural for you to think that what I said entails you may have tea and you may have coffee. Similarly, if we were talking about our friend Matt, and I said to you, Matt might speak German or French, a natural conclusion to draw would be that what I said entails that Matt might speak German and Matt might speak French. However, according to the standard vanilla theory of what the sentences you may have tea or coffee and Matt might speak German or French literally mean, you would be wrong to draw these conclusions. The standard theory holds that you may have tea or coffee does not entail you may have tea and you may have coffee, and that Matt might speak German or French does not entail that Matt might speak German and Matt might speak French. The fact that people do indeed draw these inferences is the puzzle of free choice effects. There are two ways you might go from here. You might try to change the standard theory, but this is a difficult thing to do. Or, alternatively, you might think, yeah, you may have coffee or tea doesn't really entail you may have coffee and you may have tea, The reason the hearer wants to draw those conclusions is on the basis of some kind of reasoning about what I, the speaker, intended to communicate based on the sentence I chose. In this episode, Professor Fusco opts for the first option and gives her own theory of the literal content of you may have coffee or tea. If that sounds interesting, keep listening to hear more. Welcome to Elucidations. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Melissa Fusco, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Columbia University, and she is here to discuss free choice permission. Melissa Fusco, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So free choice permission is a really interesting sort of linguistic and logical puzzle that first arose in the 70s and which people have been, I, I guess, kind of discussing, especially recently in the last like 20 years, mm-hmm. it's been uh, more and more interested in it. What exactly is the puzzle of free choice permission? Well, the puzzle of free choice permission is an unexpected inference that people make on the basis of sentences that involve a weak or diamond type modal, like may or might or can in English. Or like possibly? Uh, uh, possibly, yeah. Uh, disjunction under the scope of that modal. Uh, or there's some controversy about whether it's it needs to be under the scope. But, so like when you're using like might and or at the same time. Yeah. So for example, if I say, I'll use an example with may because that's permission. So the original, one of the original titles of the puzzle is the puzzle of free choice permission. If I say you may have coffee or tea, what I say seems to entail that you may have coffee and you may have tea. Not necessarily both, uh, but that you have a choice. So both disjuncts are individually permissible. Sometimes it's a little hard to see why that inference is puzzling. Yeah, it seems natural, right? It seems very natural. So part of what comes out of studying a modal logic or a classical logic and then modal logic is that certain inferences that we make all the time become more surprising than they would have seemed at first (laughs) because they are not predicted to be valid on the 
semantics that you learn in from those textbooks or in those courses. So I think actually one of the best ways of understanding why free choice permission, a positive entailment, in other words, something that does seem to be entailed by something that you said, why that's mysterious comes from looking at the sort of negative half of that, which is that certain inferences don't seem valid that are predicted to be valid on the classical semantics. So those are connected. The best way to start, I think, is with a different puzzle, Ross's puzzle. So that's also got a lot of attention in pretty recent literature. Ross's puzzle involves the box companion of the diamond that's in a free choice inference. So box is usually translated in English as must or ought. So that's a a necessity rather than a possibility operator. And when we say like box and diamond, we're talking about symbols you would write in a a formal language, uh, sort of of the type. That's right. In a a modal logic where the box is some form of necessity and the diamond is some form of possibility such that modal logic might be described as the formal study of possibility and necessity. It's not at a first pass a study of the way that we talk (laughs) about those things. Just like classical logic, which involves truth conditional disjunction, conjunction, negation, and a material conditional, a truth conditional if-then, that's not first and foremost an empirical theory about how we talk with if-then, for example, or with negation. But obviously they're connected. If we would like to understand what follows from what we say, then we would be interested in valid inference patterns that may come from logicizing the connectives that we in fact use. So the same idea with the same caveats applies to modal logic. If modal logic is the study of necessity and possibility, it seems like that should be informed by and in turn inform how we actually talk about necessity and possibility, how we talk about what we might or must or ought to do. Maybe in part because how else would you study necessity and possibility? It's not like possibility is a thing you can go dig out of the ground. It's not a, you don't, you don't figure out what's possible by ordinary empirical methods. It seems like we just look at the way that we talk and reason about those things. So here is Ross's puzzle. Ross's puzzle is of the form, you ought to do P, therefore you ought to do P or Q. So that, uh, if you wrote it in modal logic, would be box P, therefore box P or Q. So that's predicted in a normal modal logic to be a valid inference. What would be like a good example, like something where both of the where the first thing is true and the second thing is true, like like an English example? Well, actually, I'm not sure that there are that many. Uh, if you just talk about something that you ought to do, I ought to pay my taxes. I suppose you could say, then I ought to pay my taxes or Q, where Q is something else. I ought to pay my taxes, so I ought to pay my taxes or go on vacation. But, aha, actually it doesn't feel like that follows, right? Um, Yeah, it's weird. It feels like going on vacation is irrelevant. Like, what does that have to do with your obligation to pay your taxes? Right, and you can get sort of examples of that form of reasoning that seem worse. They're not merely irrelevant. They just seem false. They just seem wrong. So one of the original examples was, I ought to post the letter, therefore I ought to post the letter or burn it. I ought to pay my taxes, so I ought to pay my taxes or flee the country without paying my taxes. 
Yeah, that seems nuts, right? Because if you burn the letter, you obviously haven't fulfilled your original obligation, the one where you you originally thought you're just obligated to send the letter. But if you burn it, you can't send it. So it seems like that's really like conflicts with the first thing. Right, right. So think of this as the failure of or introduction in the scope of ought. From the fact that you're mailing the letter, it follows that you are mailing or burning it at least, again, on a classical uh, semantics for or. Whenever P is true, then P or Q is true. But that pattern that you can always introduce an extra disjunct, even if it's irrelevant, even if it wouldn't be as nice as the first disjunct, that it would still be true to say it. If it's true that you're posting the letter, then it's true that you're posting the letter or burning it. If Mike is a duck, then if it's true that Mike is a duck, then it's true that Mike is a duck or an insect, (laughs) whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like uninterestingly true. Like, yeah, yeah, he's one of those two things, namely a duck. Yeah. So therefore he's also a duck or insect. Well, we know. That's right. So in modal logic, both the box and the diamond are predicted to be what we call upward entailing. So that means that they preserve the direction of consequence in their scope. So if P or Q follows from P, then ought P or Q should follow from ought P. And if P or Q follows from P, then possibly or may or might, however you want to say it, P or Q will follow from may or might P. And that does come from the way that we ordinarily analyze possibility and necessity. The idea is when we talk in terms of unmodalized P's and Q's, which of course we don't actually do, when we talk about states of affairs like Mike being a duck or posting a letter, we're talking about what goes on in the actual world. When we talk about what's possible, we talk about what's going on at some possible world, not necessarily the actual one. And when we talk about what's necessary or what ought to be the case, we're talking about what goes on at every possible world, not every in the unrestricted sense, sometimes in various restricted senses. So for example, ought P doesn't mean that P is actually going on, but it does mean that P is going on at every world, which is in some sense good every world where the rules are obeyed, every world that is morally ideal, every world maybe which is as ideal as a world could be, subject to various constraints of consistency if you have conflicts between your rules. So if the inference from P to P or Q is good at the actual world, then it should be good at an arbitrary world. So that's in some sense why if P entails P or Q, then that entailment should be preserved even when you shift off-world. So it should be true under the scope of a box for necessity, and it should be uh, valid, rather, under the scope of a diamond for possibility. And yet it seems that we have counterexamples to this, again, because if you ought to post the letter, just because you ought to post the letter, it doesn't follow that you ought to post it or burn it. Now, here's the connection to free choice permission, the way that I would frame it, Why can't you conclude (laughs) that you, I mean, again, this seems like a question so obvious that it's not worth raising, but to take a naive approach, why can't you conclude from the premise that you ought to do P that uh, you ought to do P or Q? Well, because the statement that you ought to do P or Q is stronger than your premise. It has entailments, it would license inferences that you're not allowed to conclude on the basis of the premise uh, that you ought to do P. So in particular, it seems to 
carry the, a felt entailment to the permissibility of each disjunct embedded under the operator. So the reason you can't conclude from you ought to post the letter, you ought to post the letter or burn it is because burning is impermissible. So you isolate a strong entailment property of the putative conclusion of the thing that is not in fact the conclusion of your inference. Seems like free choice permission gives us a window onto what that is, why it's stronger. So the idea is if you know that you ought to do P or Q, then you can conclude that it's permissible to do P and it's permissible to do Q, which is exactly what you conclude if you knew that it was permissible (laughs) to do P or Q. So the idea is that or embedded under the box ought is like or embedded under the diamond may, in this case for deontic models, and it licenses the permissibility of each disjunct, and the question is why? So from the unremarkable fact that if I say you may have coffee or tea, you can conclude that you may have coffee and you may have tea, that can explain what's wrong with other inferences like Ross's puzzle. Nice. So we're, uh, we're killing two birds with one stone, ideally, if we can get both of these things uh, under control. What would be an example of the free choice permission with ought rather than may? Well, so free choice permission is usually by its nature. It involves a, a modal that describes possibility. But let me just give you, I think this would work in the same way. Let me give you a Ross's puzzle type example with permission, right? So the original Rasmus puzzle is you ought to post the letter, therefore you ought to post it or burn it, except that therefore can easily be challenged, doesn't seem like the inference is valid. Likewise, I can say you may post the letter, therefore you may post it or burn it. That inference sounds just as bad as the original. Yeah. So I think the data, what's a little bit funny about the original way that the literature developed is free choice permission is this puzzle that you get something stronger than you expect. Ross's puzzle is that you get something weaker than you expect. Call the weaker than expected phenomenon a negative datum, a failure of entailment. Call the stronger than expected datum a positive entailment, something stronger than you expected. But each can be transformed into the other. That's why they're related. So again, from the negative datum that I cannot conclude, I ought to post or burn from I ought to post, I can just transform that in the case of the diamond to uh, I have permission to post doesn't entail I have permission to post or burn. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So it seems like the conflict here is between the intuition that from a certain point of view, this um, inference pattern uh, we're calling disjunction introduction, where I say, Mike is a duck. Therefore, Mike is either a duck or an insect. That seems like that's a robust inference pattern because it's impossible for Mike to be a duck and not be either a duck or an insect. Um, That's just, it seems like that follows. But then if we hold on to that reasoning principle, and we think that's a good inference pattern, we get both of these undesirable Ross and free choice results. The Ross result is um, I ought to mail the letter, therefore I ought to mail the letter or burn it, which seems completely wonky. Suppose I said you may have, may have coffee or tea, I don't know which. Okay, now that I've said I don't know which, it no longer seems like you can choose. It seems like you have to go check. Like I'm getting something out of a box with no label on it. I don't know what it is, but you can have one of these boxes. I don't know what's in it or something. Yeah. So I don't know which type writers on free choice permission are sometimes interpreted as canceling the free choice effect. Now, if it follows by logic, then it doesn't seem like you can cancel. Using the term cancellation 
typically appeals to sort of pragmatic effects. So to use an example, you went on a blind date and I ask you the next day, how did your date go? And you say, the restaurant was nice. Ouch. There it seems like you are telling me, but you, you're telling me in an indirect way, you're telling me in a pragmatic enrichment type of way that the date did not go well. You're not actually saying that. Right. I'm just in a position to conclude that if it had gone well, you would have told me so. And so since you didn't tell me so, I can conclude that it didn't go well. You're just too nice to say so or something. However, that kind of inference, the inference from you didn't tell me it went well, so considering that you changed the subject and so on, I should conclude that it went poorly, that's cancelable. I could, again, run the dialogue again. How did your date go? You say, the restaurant was nice. And then you say, the date also went well. I don't mean to say the date didn't go well. I just mean, wow, I can't stop thinking about the pasta I had at the restaurant. Right. You may try to explain it away like, oh, I guess that was kind of misleading. Actually, I was just thinking about the restaurant, but the date was also pretty good. You know, you're not committed to thinking. It's not like logically required. Exactly. You're not committed to it. It doesn't follow as a matter of logic. Uh, Whereas if I had said, how did the date go? And you had replied, I have never been on a date that went well. Well, okay, again, you didn't exactly answer the question in the sense that you said not quite the yes or the no that I expected, but you said something that entails that the particular date. Yeah, you can't be like, I've never been on a good date, and this one was great. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So from the fact that you said something of the form, all Fs are G, all dates went badly for you, I can conclude that the particular one you went on last night didn't go well. And again, I conclude that by logic. So no cancellation, it seems, is possible. You can't go, I have never gone on a date that went well, but I don't mean to say that the one I went on last night didn't go well. That doesn't seem to make sense. So if I can cancel the free choice effect, then it looks like it's not semantic. It looks like it's not logical in some sense. I think that that impression is misleading. I think it actually is (laughs) likely to be an entailment, or anyway, I think that Observation doesn't show that it fails. To I mean, it does seem weird to go, uh, would you like some coffee or tea? You may have either coffee or tea, but you can't have tea. Like, that does feel a little weird to me. Right. So it seems like I don't know which cancellation for the free choice effect does something very special. My line on this, for what it's worth, is I think it's a, a scope distinction. So I think the best thing to predict or the best view that's the most flexible with regard to when people actually make these inferences and when they don't has to do with a distinction of logical form. So at logical form, either the modal operator, the diamond, will have scope over the negation or vice versa. It seems like we get free choice readings on one of those scopal disambiguations and not on the other. So Here's the problem with I don't know which cancellation. Again, the overall dialectic being that saying you may have coffee or tea, I don't know which, that I don't know which writer seems to cancel the free choice effect. So it seems to show that it's pragmatic and not semantic. It's an issue for the theory of cooperative communication and not for a theory of logic to deal with. Um, Is that I don't know which writers tend to systematically cause people to reinterpret scope. So I'll give you an unrelated example, an example that doesn't involve uh, modal operators, that it involves disjunction. So suppose I say, 
let's see, we're talking about philosophers, but I want to talk about a philosopher who I may or may not have read a lot of books by, and you are not ideally situated maybe to figure out whether I'm an expert on this author. So let's take Wittgenstein. Right? Wittgenstein is a philosopher of language in at least a salient respect, but not particularly close to the areas in philosophy of language that I work on. So I say, I haven't read a book by Wittgenstein. Ooh. Okay, so there's two scope-taking elements in that sentence, at least. One is the not in I haven't, and the other is a book, the existential a book. So when I say I haven't read a book by Wittgenstein, I could mean two things. (laughs) Um, And logical form will disambiguate which this is, the true order not the surface order, but the true logical So like whether all comes first or not comes first. Excellent. So I could mean, reading one, there isn't a single book by Wittgenstein that I've read, right? That's one reading of I haven't read a book by Wittgenstein. The other, which you might expect more if you thought I was closer to being an expert on Wittgenstein, is just that there is a single book by Wittgenstein. This is the existential having wide scope over the negation. There is a single book by Wittgenstein such that I haven't read it. Right. So, ah, you know, uh, Wittgenstein wrote N books and I've read N minus one of them. So there's a book by Wittgenstein, the nth book that I haven't read. There's a new, you know, compilation of outtakes from the Nachlass that just came out. You haven't read that yet. Right. Exactly. So which do I mean? Well, typically you don't know in the sense that surface form underspecifies logical form. You have to take your cues from context or you could ask for a clarification or I could follow it up with something that makes it obvious. For example, I could say... I haven't read a book by Wittgenstein. It's The Investigations, right? Okay, that's a bit unlikely since typically if you've read any book by Wittgenstein, it's The Investigations. But what was the book that you used as an example? Oh, I was just imagining, you know, kind of like Jimi Hendrix style, the way they're dredging up old recordings every year and pretending it's a new album, releasing it. uh, That Wittgenstein people might do that with Wittgenstein's old notes. Okay, let's say that they dig up something and it's, you know, there's the brown and the blue books. And so let's say they dig up, you know. Oh my God, the purple book. A purple book, exactly. (laughs) So I can say I haven't read a book by Wittgenstein. It's the purple book. Now, the point of that just is in that dialogue, because of the second sentence I said, because I said, it's the purple book. It's the purple book that I have not read then you would interpret the scope of a book in the original sentence, I haven't read a book by Wittgenstein, as scoping wide over the negation. Otherwise, if apropos of nothing, again, not knowing that much about me, but maybe not thinking that I work very much on Wittgenstein, and I just say, I haven't read a book by Wittgenstein, you would conclude that I haven't read a single book by Wittgenstein, that I have no copies of Wittgenstein books. Yeah, this is really interesting, right? Because like a lot of the things we say are what's called semantically ambiguous, which means they have two different literal meanings they could possibly have. And then we got to figure out in context, which of these two literal meanings was the one the person intended. But even when there are two literal meanings, the person intended often one of them is generally more likely the one that, you know, all things being equal, the person probably met. Uh, so we don't need inside information about the person to know that we, there's like a, you know, a weighting as it were of the two possible readings. Right. So let me just make a point about the, I don't know which cancellation or the putative I don't know which cancellation of the free choice effect. I don't know which tends to make existentials and disjunctions read as scoped wide. So I'm going to illustrate that with the sentence, I haven't read a book by Wittgenstein. So if I say I haven't read a book by Wittgenstein, suppose again that you don't think that I know very much about Wittgenstein. So I mean the ordinary thing, the thing I would probably mean if I said I haven't read a book by Norman Mailer, I haven't read a book by 
John Lennon or what have you. It means there isn't a single book that I've read by that author. So I say I haven't read a book by Wittgenstein. Guess which? Okay, now, even if originally you were tempted by the first reading, the not a single book reading, when I say guess which, it seems like now I'm asking you to name a particular book by Wittgenstein that I haven't read, and that question, my prompting you to guess which, that command or question, only makes sense if the existential scope's above the negation. Yeah, so you've completely disambiguated it with that follow-up. Right, so I've changed the most salient logical form of what we could call the antecedent, the sentence that precedes the which, <laughs> the thing that's I don't know which or guess which. So I think that's what's going on in the case of free choice permission as well. There's two possibilities for the logical form of the sentence, you may have coffee or tea. One is there is sort of a single proposition, the disjunction, you have coffee or you have tea, which scopes under the possibility modal that's picked out by May. The other is that it's a wide-scope disjunction. This is like the wide-scope existential with the book by Wittgenstein. So it's a disjunction of two possibility statements that have sort of been agglomerated to make the surface form shorter. When I say, you may have coffee or tea, but I don't know which, then the I don't know which raises a certain logical form to salience, and that's not the logical form on which free choice seems to obtain. So... Again, that's just big picture and argument that the cancellation data is not as good as it may seem. That's, you know, I'm controversial. I made some controversial assumptions about syntax, about the different ways that surface form can interact with logical form. I made an assumption about the robustness of logical form. I'm outraged by all this. There's always Absolutely. a fact of the matter about uh, whether the things that you say have one logical form or another, Right. You could be a skeptic about all of those things, but philosophers of language tend to work with a strong, robust assumption of logical form that, you know, goes all the way back to Russell. Uh, if you think about Bertrand Russell's examples, you know, he has those, those funny examples where he's bringing out different scope interpretations of logical form and then pointing out that certain of them are invisible to us because they would be silly or because, um, they would be communicatively uncooperative to assert. So one of his jokes is involves the yacht being longer than I it love is. Love the yacht example, right? So somebody says to another person, "I thought your yacht was longer than it is," and I don't know. These are two aristocrats, you know, sniping at one another about right. the length of the yachts they can afford, I suppose. And so the second person whose yacht has just been denigrated. Uh, he says, well, no, in fact, my yacht is not longer than it is, right? So <laughs> what's going on there, right? When I say, I thought your yacht was longer than it is, not that I've ever had occasion to say that about anyone's yacht, actually. Um, I is, thought your desk was longer than it is, maybe. It would be our yeah, case. I thought your desk was longer than it is. I thought you were taller than you are, you know. The one logical form is that you thought that my desk's length exceeded itself, which is impossible. No length can exceed itself. No matter how long anything is, it can't be longer than it is. Yeah. But that's the ridiculous reading, right? That's one disambiguation at the level of form that we tend not to hear. We would only go back and pick it out if we're trying to be testy and uncooperative in conversation, which is, of course, what is happening with the yacht example. That's why I can sort of snipe at you by saying, well, no, it's not, in fact, longer than it is. 
I'm deliberately misinterpreting you, but what makes that misinterpretation possible is that at surface form, the claim, I thought your yacht was longer than it is, actually does admit of at least two logical forms. So it doesn't just explain how we understand sentences, but how under pressure in conversation, we could go back and reinterpret those very same things. So that's a little bit, I think, what's happening with, you may have coffee or tea, but I don't know which. What's happening is right after I finish saying you may have coffee or tea, you are tempted to conclude to make the free choice inference, right? And then I say something further, which causes you to reinterpret the logical form of the first thing that I said, and now you don't think that it follows. But it doesn't show that the thing you originally thought I meant didn't have that entailment profile. It just shows that now under pressure, you've reinterpreted it to be something that doesn't have that entailment profile. Right? Compare again in the yacht case. Ordinarily, if you say, I thought your yacht was longer than it is, or I thought your desk was longer than it is, I would be in a position to conclude, or a bystander would be in a, condition, uh, in a position to conclude that what you thought about my desk was possible. You know, you may have been mistaken. You're admitting that you were mistaken about the length of my desk or the length of my yacht, but you weren't admitting to having inconsistent beliefs. And yet, on the disambiguation brought out by the testy reply, the reply, well, no, you know, <laughs> indeed, it's impossible that my desk could have been longer than it is, or you know, it's impossible for a yacht to be longer than it is. The person making that reply is trying to make it look as if you had inconsistent beliefs by reinterpreting the claim that you made about what you in fact believed. Yeah, they're trying to make you look foolish by obviously incorrectly assuming that you meant something that makes no sense. The thing is longer than itself. Right. So, you know, to bring it back to free choice permission, it's this unexpected modal entailment pattern. It's formulated in a very austere language, right? The very austere language uh, just involves modal operators and disjunction. So this is within the language of classical propositional logic, a very simple, well-studied language. And that's a non-classical entailment pattern that I argue, but there's a lot of arguments that need to be made here, arguments about cancellation, arguments about how Gricean reasoning works, and so on, uh, that is not best explained by assuming that the inference is merely pragmatic. If it's semantic, then we need a new modal logic, or we need a new way of understanding the way that classical modal logic interacts with or models features of natural language. At a bird's eye view, that's like the hard and radical way to go, is to say, let's go back to modal logic and try and reformulate it. But that's, uh, it's also a fun project, even if it's an extremely broad one. So what do you think is the best way to um, kind of reconcile these conflicting intuitions? On the one hand, we think P is true, therefore either P or Q has to be true. That seems like a good inference pattern. But you ought to mail the letter, therefore you ought to either mail the letter or burn it. Seems like a clearly bad inference pattern. And then these other, these free choice inference patterns are intuitively good, but they're predicted to be bad by the rules of uh, classical proposition logic and modal logic. How can we sort of square all these like conflicting intuitions and, uh, you know, have our cake and eat it too? <laughs> yeah, so the pattern that I would like to assimilate, for example, Ross's puzzle to the failure of or introduction in the scope of a modal has to do with a tradition that is pretty old in both philosophy of language and in modal logic, two-dimensional modal logic. So this goes back to 
Kripke's Naming and Necessity in the modologic literature. It goes back to the 1970s um, work by Siegerberg and by Comp. And the idea is that there's basically two forms of consequence that are particularly salient to us in either you could say as natural language, in natural language, or just as reasoners, maybe. And they involve the so-called two dimensions. So one way that Kripke cashed this out in Naming and Necessity is to reflect on the difference between what is a priori and what is necessary, right? So he argued that there were necessary a posteriori truths, things that were necessary even though we weren't in a position to know that they were, um, and that there's a contingent a priori, so things that are a priori in the sense that we know them on the basis of maybe reflection alone, we know them prior to experience, that's the original root of a priori, and yet they're contingent, they could have been otherwise. So divorcing the a priori from the necessary corresponds roughly in naming a necessity to divorcing epistemic and metaphysical necessity. So there are these examples, and this is sort of along the lines of what two-dimensional semantics tries to formalize, between sentences that we know a priori, so they're sort of logically valid in some sense. We know them prior to knowing anything about the world, but they do not express necessities. They're not true at every possible world. So maybe the simplest example of that, and this is sort of a dialectical tool for formulating um, two-dimensional semantics, is the claim that, I'll call it, so in in my semantics I call it bow tie. That's just so I can have a primitive symbol for it. It's the bow tie. Um, (laughs) Bowtie is the claim that everything is the way it actually is. So it involves the word actually, which is a very central expression to two-dimensional semantics. Some people, a short story, think that two-dimensional semantics is the project of axiomatizing an actuality operator. But instead, I will use this primitive statement, which is a whole sentence. It's not just an operator, like actually. And it's the claim that everything is the way it actually is. Or everything is the way in fa- it in fact is. You don't really need to use the word actually. Now, take the claim that everything is the way it actually is. It kind of feels necessarily true or something, doesn't it? It feels like it's sort of got to be true. How could that be false? <laughs> um, it couldn't be false. It seems to have a particular privileged modal status. You know, suppose I blindfolded you and took you to a new location. So there's many things concretely sort of about the world, especially where you are in the world, that you do not know in the intuitive sense. You don't know what color the walls are, you don't know how high the ceiling is, you don't know what the weather is like outside because you can't see outside the windows because you can't see anything at all. Yet, here is something you know, sort of a priori in the sense that before you get any experience about your surroundings, at least in the limited a priori sense of that, having cut off as much of your experience as I can, you still know that everything is the way it actually is. Um, So in that sense, it seems like it's a priori you know that everything is the way it actually is, even though you don't know what particular ways those are. <laughs> However, is it necessary that everything is the way it actually is? Typically, again, in a two-dimension from a two-dimensional framework, you will say certainly not. It's certainly not necessary that everything is the way that it actually is. Things could have been otherwise. That's the very 
start, that's the germ of modal logic, is to be able to reason not just truth functionally about how the world is, but how the world might have been. And how the world is categorically doesn't exhaust how the world might have been. Like, it's certainly conceivable that I could have walked in and taken your chair instead of my chair, and we would have been sitting in opposite chairs. Yeah, then chairs, things right? would be different than the way they actually are. So everything would not be the way it actually is. If right. you had worn a Currently, different shirt yeah. today, maybe you're blindfolded and you forgot which shirt you're wearing. And yet, you know, if you had worn a different shirt... It would not be the case that everything is the way it actually is. Something would have been different. So why go through all this? The idea with the contingent a priori, for example, is that you introduce modal operators, the modal operator of necessity. But then you say, look, there are certain truths like bowtie, again, which is just a simple sentence that means that has the conceptual status of the claim that everything is the way it actually is. Bowtie is always true. So in that sense, it's a truth of logic. You can conclude it on the basis of nothing. And yet, even though in that sense it's a truth of logic or two-dimensional logic, you cannot necessitate it. It doesn't follow that it's necessary that everything is the way it actually is. Of course, if you because if you concluded that, you get modal collapse, and it would be useless to introduce your boxes and diamonds into the logic in the first. And there's the shirt reasoning too, which we had earlier. Right. Yeah. So now I want to turn that observation about bow tie into a claim about inferences. So I'm going to sort of isolate two forms of good inference. Those are going to be two notions of consequence that will be formalized. One, the so-called diagonal consequence in two dimensions, and one, the so-called horizontal consequence. So it does seem like one way of saying that bowtie is always true is that you can make the following inference. From anything at all, conclude bowtie. <laughs> bowtie requires no premises. It is a conclusion that requires no premises. So typically when you formalize a modal logic, you have this rule that all the truths of logic, like P or not P, or if P then P, uh, those can be written down with no premises, right? They're axioms, and they require no, no further justification. But there's this other rule that anything you can write down with no premises, anything that is just justified as an axiom, ex nihilo, you can put a necessity operator in front of, because all the truths of logic are necessary. Now, in a two-dimensional semantics, that form of reasoning will fail because you can write down things like bowtie, everything is the way it actually is, and you can't necessitate it because from the fact that you know it, apropos of nothing, it doesn't follow that it's necessary. So now in my semantics, disjunction introduction, the inference from P to P or Q, has the same status as the inference from nothing to bowtie. So it's a good inference in the sense that whenever you know P, you're in, a, you're in a position to conclude P or Q. But it doesn't mean that it's necessary. It's not necessarily true that P or Q follows from P. So in other words, you can't extend that form of reasoning under the box. And you can't extend that reasoning under the diamond. The diamond is just the dual of the box. So from the fact that P is true, you can conclude P or Q is true only if you're reasoning about the actual world. Just like if you're reasoning about the actual world, you can conclude that everything is the way it actually is. But you can't export that reasoning off-world. So it's not the case that at an arbitrary world that is not necessarily the actual world, everything is the way it actually is. And from the fact that P is true at an arbitrary world, you can't conclude that P or Q is true at an arbitrary world. Now, rather than talking about arbitrary worlds, I'm going to talk about arbitrary, deontically ideal worlds. 
So now the box is ought. So from the fact that ought p is true, meaning p is true in an arbitrary good world, deontically ideal world, it doesn't follow that p or q is true at an arbitrary deontically good world. Bringing it back to posting and burning, just because you post the letter at all deontically ideal worlds, it doesn't follow that you post it or burn it at all deontically ideal worlds. So what I'm extracting from two-dimensional semantics is this idea that Disjunction introduction, and more generally, all classical tautologies that involve disjunction. So all statements of the law of the excluded middle, for example, P or not P, phi or not phi, those all involve or, right? That those are not necessary truths. Rather, they have a different privileged status, which logic in two dimensions can help us see. They have the status of the contingent a priori. So they're truths that you know prior to experience, their truths may be of meaning itself, of the meaning of the logical connective or, but from that it doesn't follow that they're necessary, and there's actually a well-worked-out framework that just hasn't been applied to reasoning in deontic logic uh, that gives us a guide to how that could be. Melissa Fusco, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The Elucidations blog has moved. We are now located at elucidations.now.sh. On the blog, you can find our full back catalog of previous episodes. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out on Twitter at, at elucidationspod. Thanks again for listening. Thanks.